Okay, it's nice to see you all. Uh, my name's Dave. I lead the team here at Central. And uh, as you may have guessed, we are rolling into the start of the Christmas season. And uh, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm really excited about all God's been doing in the life of our church and all that he will do, I'm sure, through this season ahead of us. Just want to say, don't miss next Sunday. It's going to be complete chaos. So we have KC party downstairs. We've got a baptism uh, as, through part of the service. And it's also the student lunch club, Christmas student lunch club. So if you're a student, you're going to get a free lunch next Sunday after church as well. So next week's chaos. Please do come. And, uh, and we'd love you to join with us throughout this Christmas season, okay? My aim, I guess, as a church leader is to try and help you, like, peak in Christmasness on, like, Christmas Day, right? We're not peaking on the 11th, the 15th, the 18th, right? We're trying to peak on Christmas Day. Bless all of you guys that work in retail, and I've already had, like, Christmas carols planned for about six weeks already, right? Uh, bless you all. We're trying to help even you peak on Christmas Day. That's the plan, okay? So uh, we would love you to join with us as we make our way through this Christmas season. And so we launch really Christmas uh, series here today that will run through all of our services, uh, crescendoing, I guess, for us on Christmas Eve. And the season that we're in, as I'm sure you will be aware, is the season of Advent. And I don't know if you've ever given much thought to that idea of Advent. Maybe just Advent for you was like a Cadbury's calendar, right? We have a calendar in our house. The kids fight over opening it every morning, right? Uh, and maybe that is what Advent has meant for you. Maybe it's more than that, okay? But I don't know about you, but for us, often it seems like Advent just begins in this kind of flurry of happy activity, right? Red cups and gingerbread lattes, Christmas lights and Christmas movies. Somebody in this room has broken the ceiling, watched Home Alone already, I am sure, right? Mariah Carey and Michael Bublé, who just emerge from the lairs that they lurk in for the other 11 months of the year, where they now come out full of power. Cheer and cheese, kind of upbeat songs. Bublé's too much, right? I'm drawing the line with Bublé. It's too much for me. Christmas lights, Christmas parties, trees, presents, all the stuff, right? It feels like Advent starts in a flurry of excited activity about all the stuff, shiny, happy, Christmassy vibes, doesn't it? It feels like that's what Advent is. But maybe there's more than that. I love this story uh, from 2017 where a woman in Pennsylvania received her electricity bill from the Christmas season, okay? So it, she gets her bill in January, having gone through December. And when she gets her bill, the bill reads $284 billion, right? That, is the, that was the total on the bill when she got it. I mean, cost of living and all that. But her response is amazing. This is her response. My eyes just popped out of my head, she told the news outlet. I mean, we had put up Christmas lights, and I wondered if we'd put them up wrong. I mean, how wrong can you possibly... Like, are you draining the entire grid of Pennsylvania on your Christmas lights, right? It turns out it was actually $284, and after a whole mix-up where she start, she proceeded down to start looking at a payment plan, which I just love. Like, how are you, I mean, how are you ever going to pay back $284 billion? Anyway, what a genuinely lovely woman, right? But right now, there are countless newspapers and news articles how even even in the middle of a cost of living crisis, people are preparing to put up huge displays of lights outside their homes, having to take extra shifts or dipping into savings or credit card debts just to do it. Why? Why? Why would you do that? When people are like not turning on their central heating or not buying food, but you're willing to spend all of that money on Christmas lights. Why? Because it feels like this is a season 
full of a way that we think we're meant to feel, doesn't it? Advent feels like the season full of some way that we think we are meant to feel. And that feeling is upbeat, isn't it? You should feel shiny, happy, excited, festive, you know, hygge, or whatever that word is that they use in Sweden that's like all around Ikea, right? That's how we should feel in the season of Advent, right? It's upbeat. Or is it? You see, for us, the church, Advent doesn't begin like that. It doesn't begin in this flurry of shiny, happy activity on December 1st. It doesn't work like that. It's not feel-good, novelty, shiny happiness. As the theologian Fleming Rutledge writes, Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. What do I mean when I say that? Well, if you've been coming to this church for any time at all, right, you'll have heard us talk about how as Christians living in the world that we live in today, we live our faith out in the reality of now and not yet, okay? We've said that lots of times. The sense of Jesus coming, his life, the cross, the resurrection, it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything for us. The kingdom of heaven is here, Jesus will say uh, in Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of his ministry as he ushers in this new age that we live in. We all take hold of a new future and new possibilities because the kingdom of God is here. And yet, it's not here yet. It's not here yet in full. So we see in part what one day we'll see in full, right? Like a Polaroid picture, if you want the image, right? We take the picture and over time it develops until we finally see it in full. It's like that. Only we will only see it in full when Jesus returns. But while we're living in this space, we know pain. We know suffering. We know loss. We know illness and doubt and fear and failure and sin, don't we? You're sat here thinking, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas, right? I mean, we lulled you into the false sense of security. You were going to get the happiest sermon of the year. It's like we even put up, put up the Christmas lights, right? Somewhere in the room, somebody is like hiding their red cup right now, like sliding it out of sight, okay? You thought we were bringing you here for the uplifting one. We'll get there in a minute, okay? What has it got to do with Christmas, right? What has all that got to do with Christmas? Well, the answer is, it is everything to do with Advent. Fleming Rutledge will write this. In a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. It can well be called the time between because the people of God live in the time between the first coming of Christ incognito in the stable in Bethlehem and his second coming in glory to judge the living and the dead. She'll go on. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. We live our life in the tension of Advent. Because to be alive is to be so very familiar with pain, isn't it? Maybe even particularly as we look out and around us in the Christmas season where we feel like we're meant to feel happy, but many of us don't. It's the man sleeping rough on the street outside the restaurant you go to for your Christmas dinner. It's visiting a hospital to see a loved one over the Christmas season. It's the strange reality that for some reason, loss seems to feel worse and sting more at Christmas. It's the huge swathes of the world still living in poverty as we unwrap yet another aftershave box set. It's the tension of Advent, isn't it? The pain and the darkness of the world we live in and the light that has come. 
We will, after all, read at our carol services, right? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Advent is a season where we are so very aware of the reality that we live in. It begins in the dark, and yet light has come. We wait, we anticipate, we live into the promise of the story that the light has come. So we long forwards, bearing witness to the light that's come and waiting expectantly for that one day. Advent is this season that begins in the dark, but promises the light that will break through. It's the season where we live towards the light. And so Advent really has two big themes, okay? And if you're into Christmas carols, which I'm sure you've already got playlists going in your house, right? There are two big themes, and they tend to run through carols all of the time. And they are these, judgment and hope, okay? Judgment and hope, right? And the thing is, judgment is not the same as condemnation, right? When we hear the word judgment, we hear condemnation, right? I feel judged. That kind of way, you know, that thing that we say in this day and age when we think of judgment. It's not that, okay? It's really all about trusting in God's promise to redeem humanity humanity and set the whole world right. It's the trust that one day our lives and our world, they won't look like this anymore. And so it's marked with a hope because Advent is the season that that hope and that light begins to break through. Don't believe me? Well, just think about the words of joy to the world, right? Maybe the most joyous of all the kind of carols we sing. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare room. I'm not going to do the heaven and nature sing. Right? I'm not going to do it. Right? Uh, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ while fields and floods and rocks, hills and plains repeat the sound of joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Judgment and hope. And as you look through and sing the carols this Christmas, you will see it and you will sing it. Again and again and again. And so Advent for so many of us, really, is this sense of a double life December. We live this double life December through the Advent. By that I mean that we're all in for celebrating the season, right? Wreaths, lights, trees, carols, presents, mulled wine, the lot, right? The season of Advent isn't about us being outside of it all. Of course it's not. Take it all in. All of you have just taken a really deep sigh of relief that I'm not coming for your Christmas, right? Take it in. We live that part of the story too, but it's about hoping beyond all of that, beyond the sentimentality, traditions, and the cheer to something far more significant than that. You know, every year we'll do Christmas services, and I'm so aware that our focus is the happy, shiny elements of it all, when in truth, there's many of you today or in the weeks that are ahead who are in or have been struggling through a season of feeling distant from God or wondering where he is or struggling to hear his voice or struggling to know his presence in your life. I'm really aware that that's lots of you. Well, I have good news for you. Finally, I have good news for you because Advent is a season which doesn't ignore that. The comfort of the Advent, whenever I say that Advent begins in the dark, is that it acknowledges the fact that very often it can feel for us that we're those people walking in the dark. That we're walking in the dark. Actually, it speaks to it. It's a season that begins in the dark, like it did in the Christmas story, and ends up with us face to face with the light. 
It begins in the dark and we end up face to face with him, with Jesus. It's a season of longing, hoping, and anticipating. It's the season that's about the breaking in of God upon our darkness. Tis the season that reminds us about the promise that against all the odds and against all the evidence that the struggles of this present life present, that there is a God who cares, that there is a light that has come. That's what Advent is about. And so for this Christmas season, we're going to be walking through some of the big stories of the Advent series, okay, with four key words, searching, hoping, finding, and future. And that's going to be our headings over the next number of weeks. And so today we start with that word, searching. And I want to say today that searching really in the, in the story that we're going to look at today is about two things. It's about language and participation. That our searching is about language and participation, okay? So the first thing is language. So our series is going to be based around four scenes of the Advent and Christmas series, okay? The Magi, the Shepherds, the Birth, and Simeon. And today we kick off with the Magi, okay? And this is what it says in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is what it says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he, when he had called together all the, people, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is one of those passages that we all know well, isn't it? If you've ever been to a carol service, a nativity play, maybe you starred in a nativity play at some point in your past, right? If you've ever been to one, you'll have heard this story, okay? We know it so well that it sometimes is pretty easy to miss what's going on in the story itself, okay? For a start, okay, Matthew is astonishingly brief in how he describes the birth of Jesus, isn't he, right? Like he's, I mean, this is one of the significant acts of the whole Bible, and yet he just says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, right? Like, that's it, okay? That's it. And as we read through the passage too, we get no mention of a stable either, okay? We might expect that stable to be in there. Stable isn't mentioned. In fact, when the Magi eventually do get to meet Jesus in verse 11, the passage says, on coming to the house, 
not the stable, they saw the child, right? Two things are interesting. One, they got to the house, right? Sorry if I'm shattering all your nativity kind of uh, nostalgia here today, right? Two, it was a child and not an infant. In other words, the word they used was not the word that would have been used for a very new baby. And so many of our Christmas seasons feature wise men at the birth, don't they? Quite a few commentators suggest that the word for house and uh, the word for child and infant, they weren't by chance. It's likely that the Magi got there some time after Jesus was actually born. In other words, I'm sorry to devastate your nativity plays. I'm going to have to break it to my daughter ahead of her nativity play that theologically it is incorrect, right? And then we have the Magi, right? This is what it says about the Magi. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, While we're on the topic this morning and we're ruining all of your Christmas carols and favorite Christmas card scenes, okay, there are some other things from this scene that are not what we think so well. First of all, it doesn't say anything about there being three of them, right? It doesn't say that there's three. We just, many people assume there's three because there's three gifts and nobody likes to be left out. So there's three gifts, so there's three wise men, right? So I'm sorry if I'm ruining it for you, okay? But that's what it says. In fact, it's very likely that there was actually a big entourage with these people, right? Astrologers, as we'll find out, were kind of a big deal in the time. So it's likely, actually, that it wasn't just three men riding in on a camel or a horse into Jerusalem that day. It's likely that there was a big band of them. How on earth, in other words, would a whole city notice their arrival if there was only three? That's what it says, doesn't it? It says that all of Jerusalem was troubled along with Herod at these men's arrival, right? It was likely there was an entourage came through with the Magi. Also, also, we have no idea if they're kings at all. So that ruins your we three kings of Orient, right? So that's ruined for you too. And finally, we definitely don't have their names, right? Uh, because in nativities, quite often they use their names. We don't have their names. It wasn't until the sixth century that some writers began to fill in names for these three men, even though we don't know if there were three, right? So we don't know their names, don't know if there was three of them, and we don't know if there were kings, right? So now that I've ruined it, I'm going to give you some good details, right? So what do we know? Well, the team Magi was, or- was originally the name given to a tribe of priests in Persia. Persia was towards the east. But as time went on, that name also came to be given to magicians and astrologers. It became kind of an umbrella term for a whole bunch of different people. And of the time, it was generally accepted that the very best astrologers, they came from the east. And so these were astrologers. Now, for today, like, astrology can kind of seem like a bit of a niche interest. Like, if you go to your friend's house and they've got a telescope, you're like, weirdo. But a telescope? Yeah. Are you correcting me? It is a telescope. Anyway, right? Telescope, right? It's a bit of a niche interest. But the thing is, we have to remember, right, in a world of streetlights and light pollution and all that, right, the ancient world, right, it never forgot about the night sky. We find it easy to forget about the night sky, don't we? In fact, sometimes we even struggle to see the night sky. But to the ancient world, they never forgot about it. And they paid great attention to what was going on. This was a world much more turbulent and violent in many ways than the world in which we live today. With homes, for example, that were much more susceptible to damage in storms or bad weather or freak events and all that, right? The night sky was steady and it was constant in what was a very changing world. So they looked to the night sky all the time. 
And the way people lived then also was much more connected to the events of the natural world than we do now, right? We think we're in control of the natural world. They never presumed that in that time. So there was this kind of pervasive belief that when something important was about to happen on earth, we could expect to see it reflected in the heavens. Like if something important was going to happen in our world, you could expect it to be reflected in the sky. But for many rulers, that didn't sound like good news, okay? So the shooting star or an eclipse could all of a sudden mean that it was the, the end of one ruler's reign as an astrologer watched and told the world what they'd seen, okay? So for example, it was said that Nero reportedly slaughtered many nobles in the hope that their death, rather than his own, would fulfill the prediction of a coming comet, Right? So this comet happened, it predicted it would be the end of Nero, and so what did he do? He thought, well, kill all these people, and then that'll take it away from me, okay? It means I might survive if they die. So that's what he did. They paid attention. The thing is, therefore, that it made these men dangerous men. It actually made the Magi dangerous men. Because people paid attention to the stars, people paid attention to what astrologers had to say. They paid attention to them. What they had to say was important because the night sky was important. A number of years ago, uh, I was sitting in my kitchen. We just cooked dinner for some friends. And it was a pretty miserable winter's night, right? It was one of those nights with like horizontal rain, just bleak outside, okay? And, And the wind was howling. We were just sitting talking at the dinner table. And while we're eating, all of a sudden we became aware of this ginormous light that begins to shine through our back doors, right? So we're like, what on earth? is going on, right? Like I literally, I think some sort of UFO uh, is like above us in the sky because genuinely there's this like massive light shining through our back doors. It's so bright and it's not high up enough that you're thinking it's a star, right? It's a bit lower than that, but like it's still pretty high up in the sky, which makes it like look like, are we about to suffer some sort of terrorist attack or something, right? So I'm like part terrified, part completely inquisitive as to what is going on outside. I'm bamboozled by it all, right? And we all gather around the back doors, can't get our heads around what on earth we're seeing, what could be shining such a bright light. So I get my coat on, go out into the street, right? But it's one of those ones you kind of like out the door, you know, like, like really nervously going out, right? But I go out and when I got outside, what I find is that BT are filming a BT Infinity advert And in the street, they've blocked off the street. They have a man in a ginormous crane, like bless him, up there on the windiest night ever, with this huge spotlight shining into a house, which then became one of the BT Infinity adverts that was on TV at a while, right? Who knew, okay? So it wasn't a UFO or anything like that. But the point was, we looked out, and I had no idea what I was looking at. No idea what it could have been. The thing is, the Magi wouldn't have been like that when they saw that star. They followed the star. And there are lots of kind of comments and attempts to try and explain what happened in the sky that night. A supernova, Halley's Comet, the conjunction of planets, Jupiter and Saturn. Maybe even that it was the glory of God that they were seeing whenever they looked in the sky. In truth, we don't have a definitive answer for what it could have been. But what we do know is that these men studied the sky And somehow they knew something of the prophecies. They knew what they were looking at. They knew what they were looking for when they looked in the sky. They would have noticed everything. 
They didn't live in a world like ours where light pollution means you can barely even see the stars anymore. No, they, the stars shone brightly in their eyes and their whole lives were poured into interpreting what they saw in the skies. That's what they had given their lives to. They studied. They had become. And so as they studied the sky that night and they saw the stars, they started packing their bags immediately and they set off to see the king. Isn't it astonishing when you think about it? That these men that these men were from the east. They were outsiders, complete outsiders. That they were astrologers, which meant they were dangerous. And even more so, they were Gentiles. And yet here we find them, Gentiles, in one of the Christmas stories. One of the pictures in the Christmas scenes. The outsiders here to worship Jesus. What was happening here? How did this happen? The answer is that God was speaking their language. God was speaking their language. Outsiders from the East, Gentiles, not inside with the Jewish faith. How on earth would God reach people like that? You see, the whole world would have been looking at that sky, and yet only they knew to follow. God was speaking their language. And even though they had never seen God, they believed enough by what they saw in the skies to pack up their things and travel to get to Jesus. These men, because even though they came from far away, even though they were mystics, even though a king tried to warn them off, even though they came from a culture outside of what you would expect, even though nobody else showed up, they met Jesus. And every single even though of their lives and of yours is met in him today. I want to tell you today that if Magi can get drawn into the story of God and his redemptive purposes for mankind, if Magi can meet Jesus, then so can you. Then so can you. I want to tell you that no matter how far you've come or, for how, or, or how far you maybe even feel from him right now, if you're searching, God can speak your language. If you're searching today, God can speak your language. If you're searching, God can speak you. Scott the painter in his book, Honest Advent, he says that there is something about how you are wired that God speaks to and speaks through, that the patterns of the exterior world as you see it speak to the patterns of your interior world. And in so doing, God speaks your language and you can meet him. For the Magi, it was the stars. But what is it for you? What is it for you? What would speak your language? What is your language? Because there is a searching in the Advent season and it's about language. God can speak you. And if you listen, you can meet him. Second, it's about participation. It's about language, but second, it's about participation. And parents are responsible for some of the worst phrases, right? I mean, the all-time classic, it's not what you say, but the way you say it, right? You know that phrase, if there was ever a phrase in the English language that riles up a teenager more than that one, I have never heard it, right? It's not what you say, it's the way you say it, right? Immediately turned the ballistic setting on and exploded your parents afterwards, to which they say, you see, right? That's what happens, right? 
Now, I was always a really competitive person. I still am. I cannot stand losing, right? But the problem was I was, I was reasonably quick as a runner when I was a child, but like never fast enough to ever win the flat race at school, right? I was like a solid fourth place, you know, the worst position, right? And so one sports day, I come back from having got like fourth. I come in through the door and my mum drops the eternal mum line, right? David, it's not the winning. It's the taking part that counts, right? She drops it, right? To which I explode at her and I'm like, mom, that's what all the losers say. And like storm off upstairs, right? To my room, having come forth, right? Taking part, okay? Taking part. And I say that because in this story, there is a truth in it. Because in our searching, there is a truth in the fact that it is the taking part that that counts. I'm not sure it's true when it comes to running races, but when it comes to searching, participation is key. And it's there for all to see in the passage when we look at three groups that the passage highlights, right? There is a story, and it's in the contrast between three groups in this passage, okay? And the first of them is Herod, okay? So Herod appears in this passage. He's pretty prominent in it, actually. And thanks to Roman records, we actually know quite a lot about Herod, okay? One writer explains that Herod the Great, as he's now called, was born in 73 BC, was named King of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. By 37 BC, he had crushed, with the help of Roman forces, all opposition to his rule. So Herod had come from ruling class, he had come from power and money, he was wealthy, gifted, a brilliant politician, and he was very able for the role that he had. The thing is, though, that he was also widely disliked. He taxed the people really heavily, and Jews thought of him as a usurper, which he hated. Most of all, he loved power. He loved power. The commentator Donald Carson writes, in his last years, suffering an illness that compounded his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy, he killed close associates, his wife, Mariamna, and at least two of his sons. He's a ruler obsessed with power. So obsessed with power that later in his life when he became more and more paranoid, he did this. He was obsessed with power. And so therefore, the Magi were dangerous. The Magi were dangerous, but Jesus, he was a threat. Magi were dangerous, but Jesus was a threat. The very first verse, spell it out, why, loud and clear. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That's political dynamite right there, right? Because if you're Herod and power and control is what you, you long for, what you work towards, what you reinforce with violence and Roman rule, and somebody comes along and says, where's the one who's been born king of the Jews? Not the one who one day will be, or the one who might be, or could be. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Jesus is a threat. In other words, if he's the king, Herod isn't. And so Herod wants him dead, because all he has at heart is himself. It's himself. It's why whenever the the Magi arrive, he sends for them. He wants them to come so that they can tell him about the one that they're searching for so that he can find out where where he's born so that he says he's going to go and worship them. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to go and kill them. And by the way, he's probably going to kill the Magi as they leave town as well because all he has at heart is himself. So there's Herod and Herod has himself at heart. And then we have the scribes and the teachers of the law. 
And so when the Magi arrive in Jerusalem that day, he gathers all his best people to help him understand what on earth is going on. Now we know from a bit later in Jesus' life that so many of his arguments are with scribes and Pharisees, that the religious law had become an incredibly complicated thing in that time as hundreds of additional laws are added to the original laws, right? Like sub-laws, if you will. And so it was these people's business to know what the prophecy said, right? It was an incredibly complicated thing, so it was their job to know what it all meant and what it all pointed to, so he had these leading teachers. And so when Herod asks them, what on earth is going on here? This is what they say. He'll be born in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Not only do they know where Jesus is going to be born, but they know the very prophecy from Micah that told them so. These are religious people who know so very much, and yet when we get to the Christmas scenes, the reality is they're not to be seen in any of them. They're nowhere to be seen in any of them, to know so much and to do so very little. It's apathy, isn't it? Herod's life is marked with a sense of self, then these guys' lives is marked with a sense of apathy, isn't it? They're more concerned about their influence, their position, their voice and place and status. Their lives were dedicated to know their religion inside and out, and yet when the time came, these insiders, they did nothing. They took Jesus for granted. They had other priorities. Apathy ruled in their hearts. And then finally, we have the Magi. And the contrast couldn't be any clearer, could it? These outsiders, mystics, dangerous types from the East, right? What do they do? Well, some commentators who specialize in the geography of biblical times think that they most likely traveled from Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, and they traveled to Bethlehem, which is modern-day Palestine, and that is around 800 kilometers by horse or by camel, right? 800 Kilometers. Now, I have never ridden a horse or a camel, okay? I once rode a jet ski for about half an hour one day on holiday, and I didn't think my delicate parts would ever work again, right? So 800 kilometers on a horse is a massive distance, isn't it? The thing is, though, it's not only the distance. But when they get there, they meet a king who is trying to trick them. Because not only is he trying to kill Jesus, but he's going to try and kill them too if he can. All in the end of the day, to follow a star, to find the king of a faith that wasn't theirs. Think about that for a moment. 800 kilometers into danger, following a star, looking for a king who wasn't from a faith that was theirs. That's incredible, right? I find it so totally astonishing that men with so little to go on should venture so very far, endure such hardships and travel, and face such uncertainties of actually even finding the one the star pointed to. And yet, they did. They did. The first people to worship Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, the Magi. As outside as it's possible to be, the first people to worship him are them. And it was their participation in the unfolding story of God in their lives that led them there to Jesus. There's a story of contrasts in there. 
And we could live our lives like Herod this Christmas season, where all we have at heart is ourself, couldn't we? Christmas is maybe the easiest season in all of the year to have ourselves at heart, isn't it? Things I want, stuff I want to do, the way it should look, etc., etc., etc. Or we could be apathetic. There's probably no season in the rest of the year that you will know the stories as well as you do this one. There's probably no season of, of life as, as much as the Christmas season where we will talk about Jesus maybe as much as, the, as this one that we do as we arch all of the stories towards his coming, towards his birth. Images of Jesus are everywhere. TV adverts, school plays, churches. It is everywhere. And yet if we are not careful... We can just be apathetic too, can't we? To know so much and do so little. I'm not sure why you're here today. I have to assume that searching is part of your story. Maybe like the whole season of Advent suggests, you're in a time of wrestling and struggling to hear God. Maybe you're searching for guidance today. Maybe you've been searching your whole life The message of this passage is one of the contrasts. That you need to see past yourself if you're going to see him. And that you need to participate beyond your apathy if you're going to meet him. There is knowledge, but knowledge is no substitute for participation. And that's what the Magi had. And they offered their participation and it was they who met Jesus. The question is, how about you? How about you today? You know, it's my deepest desire that this Advent series, this Advent season, that we might set aside the hustle bustle and the shiny sparkly stuff just enough, like just enough, that we might hear ourselves speak to acknowledge and come to terms with how we're making our way through the darkness to acknowledge our struggles, our fears, to acknowledge maybe that we are struggling to hear God, maybe that we are struggling to meet with him, but also that we might meet Jesus this Christmas, to know that no matter how far off we feel, that God speaks your language, that God can speak you. However it is that you hear, however it is that you see, that something in the exterior patterns of this world and the way that God speaks can speak to the interior patterns of your heart, that God speaks your language and that it's our participation that makes all of the difference. Advent is about searching. First of all, it's about searching. As it begins in the dark, And we long and we look and we live towards the light which has come and is coming this Advent season.